Today on Good in Theory, moral luck, murder knives, and why Jello may be tainted by Bill Cosby. I'm Cliff Mark, and this is Good in Theory. Back again, we have Paul Sagar of King's College London. He's here for our second installment of Thought Lab the series in which Paul and I discuss philosophical thought experiments and the ideas and arguments that they bring up. Today, we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about what to do when you find out that the artist behind art you enjoy is a morally bad person, whether you should slice the Sunday roast with the murder knife, and how you can be blamed for things, even though you really never meant to do anything wrong. Instead of starting right away with the thought experiment this week, uh, we're going to structure our talk around an essay that Paul wrote in Eon Magazine. The essay is called Tainted by Association. You should go and read it. And as I understand it, Paul, your entire line of thinking in this essay started with a kind of disappointed love for Canadian pop star Brian Adams. No, Ryan Adams. It's a very important distinction, Cliff. Brian Adams is the atrocious 90s pop icon uh, associated with that terrible theme song from Robin Hood and the awful Summer of 69 song that you heard every time you went anywhere at university for a drink and like inevitably that got played. The artist yes, Canadian of. hero Brian Adams. <laughs> no, Ryan uh, Adams, uh, country folk uh, American singer, uh, Ryan Adams. Although really, I, I only really kind of like his early albums because, you know, that's the cool thing to like. Um, uh-huh. But uh, yeah, what happened was um, I was reading the news one day and a story came up on, on I think it was either the BBC or, or the Guardian or some, you know, liberal lefty website that I peruse. And um it turned out that uh, Ryan Adams was having his very own Me Too move, uh, moment when people, uh, were women who'd worked with him in the industry, accused him of extorting sexual favours in return for uh-huh. advancement of their careers. Um, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound like Brian Adams, actually. <laughs> no, no. Uh, a good, <laughs> good Canadian like Brian Adams would never engage in such, such activities. Um, but, but what was interesting to me was that in my immediate response when hearing these allegations was I didn't believe them. I was just like, no, there's no way that's true. That can't be true. Ryan Adams can't be because, because women are liars. Is that, is that so, your so, thinking Paul? So it's probably sadly the case that unfortunately the, there may have been a reflex along those lines because we live in a society in which certain values towards women's sexuality are embedded quite early on in our upbringings we're encouraged um not to treat these things as seriously as perhaps we should and there is a often a default suspicion that um that women make these kinds of things up and that famous men don't do that kind of thing and it's just petty jealousy or revenge and um so sadly there may well have been something like that and of course i try to correct for those kinds of attitudes because i try not to be a chauvinist pig um so i tried to think you know well okay hang on we've been through me too and we know that women tend not to make these kinds of stories up and you know we should we should listen carefully so that was one level of response but then i thought there's more to it than this there's more to what's going on in this case than me simply not wanting to believe because of ingrained sexism although it's possible that 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 played a role what was weird is that I didn't want it to be true because I really like Ryan Adams's music, in particular his seminal album Gold, 
um, which if uh-huh. people haven't heard it, they really should. It's it's an absolutely amazing, you know, it's a rock, it's a brilliant rock record from the early two thousands. Um, just every track's fantastic, and it's one of my sort of. It means a lot to me that album. I associate it with happy summers and road trips, and it reminds me of certain people in certain times in my life. And I had this horrible feeling that if it's true that Ryan Adams is a sexual predator, then I'm not going to be able to listen to that album anymore. That album's <laughs> that album's going to feel tainted to me, right? You're the true victim here, Paul. Yeah, exactly, man. You know, it's me. <laughs> I'm the one who's suffering here. Um, and when I sort of stepped back, I kind of realized that that was, that was playing a really important role in my emotional rejection of the, the claims being made against Ryan Adams. So without any evidence either way, I intuitively or instinctively wanted to not believe these claims. And I think mm-hmm. the most important thing for me was because I wanted to protect my enjoyment of a record that he made that I like a lot. And that suddenly struck me as really quite weird. Um, why should it matter that this album that was made 20 years ago, why should it matter if 20 years later the guy who made it turns out to have been a bit of a scumbag? I mean, why can we not separate those things? But it, but it really did matter to me. And I think it really matters to a lot of people if they find out that artists or celebrities who they previously respected turn out to be terrible people who've done terrible things. It tends to mean that we struggle to appreciate the thing that we used to like that they produced. And there's been many, many examples in recent years. Ryan so Adams was You're saying when we me. find out, like, but, when an artist is a scumbag, it uh, spoils the art for you? I don't think it's just me. I don't think it's just that it spoils the art, but it's somehow that the, the scumbagness of the person who created it spills over into their creations. It starts to kind of infect or taint the thing that they made, right? So think about something like Bill, Cros- Bill Cosby, right? For many, many people, Bill Cosby was this comic genius who you know, lit up their lives in his sitcoms and his comedy performances. And when you find out that he was a serial rapist who drugged and abused women, it's kind of hard to put on you know, Bill Cosby's comedy and think, well, you know, funny guy, he was just <laughs> acting. You know, we can separate the actor from the performance. You know? In fact, anybody who suggested that would seem downright morally unhinged it seems to me similarly michael jackson a lot of people now feel very uncomfortable listening to the music of michael jackson knowing what we think we now know about some of his behavior Uh, that one's complicated because a lot of people want to say well he himself was abused by his father and suffered and so you know there may be mitigating circumstances but but this is this seems like not just me it seems like there's a common response Uh um that human beings have which is people's actions can taint the, the things that they have produced and made. Okay, and so why is that why is that weird? So because basically there's a sense in which it's arbitrary that Ryan Adams himself you know, and I think I actually don't know where this case has got to. For legal reasons we should probably be careful. I haven't followed it <laughs> and I probably should go and look at look it up. I guess I've been kind of willfully ignorant because nothing else has come out. But, but let's let's stick with a case like like Bill Cosby where we we know full well that he was guilty, you know, very, you know, there's no doubt about it. Because if Bill Cosby was playing a role in his comedy shows, you know, then he was playing a role. And it's simply irrelevant for the performance of the actor that the, the you know that the actor themselves in their private life was doing other terrible mm-hmm. things. So there's a puzzle there because the thing we're uh-huh. upset about is his private behaviour. So why should that 
reflect upon his performance because we're all completely comfortable saying the actor and the performance are separable things and yet we don't uh-huh. separate them we think that actually one can be you know and t- you know, 30 years later when we find this out right. we can think hang on a minute that 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 isn't funny after all and we may have thought it was 30 years ago but that's because we didn't know the full facts but the full fact that the guy in his private life did something. So there's a separate, there's a, the, the, right. at least when you spell it out like that, we should be separating these things, right? Because they're not the same. And yet it's very hard to feel that they are separate. They seem very much bound up together. So that's the example of a work of art being tainted by the moral history of the artist. But that's kind of a jumping off point in your essay to another set of cases, which... I think are even a bit stranger, which are cases in which physical objects also take on a kind of taint or moral aura from their moral histories. So tell me about that. So what I think is going on in these cases where art is being tainted by the creator's bad behavior is a complicated manifestation of the phenomenon that philosophers know as moral luck. Um, and, and moral luck has many, many dimensions and is quite complicated. But one dimension of it is precisely this idea of objects acqu- acquiring a certain kind of aura based on the past usages they've been put to. And here I think it, it can maybe help if we break it down to some more straightforward examples and then maybe we can return to the complex examples to do with the celebrities in due course. And maybe just look at some intuitively powerful cases and see how they work and then hopefully try and build back around to try and explain what what might be going on in the the cases of art being tainted by the artist having you know morally transgressed in various ways sure go ahead so the 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 example that i really love which is uh one by the philosopher simon blackburn he introduced it in in his paper on on this subject is Imagine you're sitting down to dinner at my house. You know, I've invited you and some other friends over uh, and I'm carving the roast, uh, you know, having roast beef tonight (laughs) and I'm carving the knife, uh, carving with this knife. And I just casually remark, um, oh, oh, yeah, this is the very same knife that the the home invader used um, to to murder my wife and children as I was tied up in the basement with electrical (laughs) tape. Uh, But don't worry, I'm over it now. Um, You know, I did have PTSD for a while, but I had a good therapist and, you know, I'm kind of over it now. Uh, Here's your beef, Cliff. Uh-huh. How would you feel about <laughs> about eating beef with a knife that I'd or how you know how would you feel about this entire situation? I I'd feel that you're uh you invited me to a pretty creepy dinner party, Paul. Yeah, pretty creepy, right? Yeah. And what's yeah. creepy about it? It seems a bit casual that you'd be using the murder weapon to serve dinner. Right. And how do you even have it? Do they let you <laughs> yeah, as like okay, souvenirs? Okay. So, so I would think that. <laughs> so obviously, like it, we're we're doing we're now doing a proper thought experiment where we're 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 having slightly yeah. silly examples because of course you you wouldn't be allowed to keep the murder weapon. It would be police evidence. And but interestingly, that kind of thing in most jurisdictions is impounded, right? Murder weapons are partly because of evidential reasons, but partly they are kept. Um, and withheld from being put back into circulation because they are associated with the crime itself. So this this practice was quite well entrenched for a long time that objects which were used for the killing of other people, caused the death of others, were seized and destroyed because there was something about the object itself um, which was offensive. Uh, right, so this- the, the object was poisoned, morally poisoned by... 
by the crime that had taken place. Right. There was something about the object itself that uh-huh. was compromised. In the same way that you just think there was something really creepy about my willingness to use the knife that had murdered my wife and children as just a knife, right? But, but which is uh-huh. odd because it is just a knife. The fact that it's pretty it, good knife, pretty good knife, right? Really nice and sharp. Yeah. You know? It was very effective. Um, it's, it cuts the beef as well as it, cu- you know, cut through my children's bones. Okay, right? <laughs> but the point is, no, but the worse point, and of, worse. Of course, of course. But the point is, <laughs> it's a knife, right? It does what knives do. It cuts through things. It could mm-hmm. have been any knife that the assassin used that day. They could have picked a different knife from the drawer, or they could have brought their own. They just happened to use this one. But from the moment that they happened to use that one, that knife is compromised. And for me to just use it as a knife, as though it had no history prior to it, which we know it does, is Uh weird, right? But then that's something that needs to be explained because it's just a knife. Except now we don't think it's just a knife. It's the knife that killed my family. Yeah, but are you saying it's right that they think the, the knife is haunted? Because isn't this just superstition? Well, so let's hold off on the question of whether or not it's right or wrong. Because I think we don't want to jump into that too quickly. And in a way, that loads the deck because it encourages a straightforward yes-no answer. And we might want to dig a little deeper. And the first thing I think we should notice is it cuts in both directions. So. Hey. Hey. hey! No pun intended. Because because it's not just good, it's not just bad things, right? It's not just that things can become associated with crimes and evil deeds and thus become tainted. They can go the other uh-huh. way. They can have their value increased. So again, another example that Simon Blackburn uses in his article is um, imagine that you're in a, in someone's house and they have a collection of guitars and they have like 20 guitars and they say, yeah, but this guitar, this is the Fender guitar that Jimi Hendrix played the night before he died. This is the last guitar that Jimi Hendrix ever played. Right. So that is like a relic. It's a relic, right? It, be, it becomes a special thing. Right. That exactly. becomes extremely valuable. It's a sliver of the true cross of rock and roll. <laughs> exactly, right? And you no, know, even if you just wanted to hang it in your house and never, you know, never cash in on it, that would be the one that has real value, yeah? If you wanted to take it to auction, if you could prove that it was the last guitar that Hendrix played, people would pay many, many, many millions of pounds more for that than it, right? But let's suppose that that Fender guitar is identical to the other 200 that came off the production line that week, right? And as a guitar, let's imagine it doesn't play any better than any other guitars. It's you know, it's it's just a perfectly good Fender guitar. Uh-huh. It could have been any guitar that Hendrix picked up and played for that show, but he picked this one, and because he did, this one is special, right? So again, we have this this idea that something that's essentially a matter of luck, this knife rather than that knife, uh-huh. this guitar rather than that guitar is now invested with either value or disvalue because of an event that happened in the past. And that, so that's interesting. It works in both directions. Okay. So, so far we have art that's tainted by its association with the immoral acts of the artist, Bill Cosby's comedy, Ryan Adams' music, Jell-O, Michael Jackson tunes. And then we have inanimate objects which are tainted by their own history like the murder knife or jimmy's guitar which is a kind of good moral aura and and now i want to get to the more central cases of moral luck because when we're talking about moral luck it's usually about individuals it's about the idea that your moral status whether you're good or a bad person depends on luck somehow and that's counterintuitive so The important thing to be aware of here is that 
most of our moral judgments seem to track something really important, which is the intention of the agent who performed a moral action. Indeed, it seems to be intention that determines entirely whether or not we think somebody did something good or bad. And I can give you an example here to, to make this clear. If I push you and you fall over and hurt yourself, absent uh -huh. further knowledge of my intentions, it's unclear whether I did something good or bad. If I intended, if I pushed you because I intended to hurt you. It sounds right? bad. Yeah, that's pretty bad, right? <laughs> that's pretty bad. Like you fall over, you hurt yourself, right? Then I've done something bad, right? But let's say that the reason I pushed you and, I, and I've hurt you because you've fallen over, was because there was a, a moped tearing down the street, which you hadn't heard because you had your headphones on. And if I hadn't pushed you, they would have hit you and probably killed you, right? Now, in both cases, the outcome is exactly the same. You know, you fall over and get hurt because the, because the cause was exactly the same uh -huh. in both cases. I pushed you, right? But when you find out that the reason I pushed you was because the moped was going to hit you, then suddenly I did something good rather than something bad, right? Now, this might seem, uh -huh. well, hang on, isn't it about the consequences, right? You seem to save me from the moped, which would have killed me. So isn't, isn't right, the reason right, right. this is good because the consequences were better in this case, okay? But even in a case like this, it seems like it can't really be the consequences that make a difference. Because let's suppose that the moped, in fact, wasn't going to hit you at all, that I just completely misjudged its trajectory, right? That actually, you was nowhere near hitting you, but I'd panicked in the moment, I'd pushed you anyway, uh -huh. right? Now, in this case, if you, if I tell you, oh, I'm really sorry, I genuinely thought the moped was going to hit you, even though actually it wasn't, then you'll still think, oh, well, they tried to save me, they tried to help me, so that must have been a good action, right? And what that tells right. us is that when we judge other people's behavior, what we're really judging is the intentions that lay behind their actions not the, simply the consequences. Like, if you didn't mean to do it, I shouldn't be mad at you. Exactly, right? And as a general rule, if somebody did something to us which caused us harm, but they meant to cause us benefits, then we'll tend to forgive them. Mm -hmm. Whereas if they, they try to cause us harm, um, but accidentally cause us benefits, well, we'll tend to withhold our support for them, uh, our, our sort of uh, approval of what they did for us because they didn't mean to bring us a benefit, right? You know, if I, um, mm -hmm. if, if I meant to send you a poison cake on your birthday to make you incredibly sick, but the, the, the bakery messed up and sent you a really nice cake that didn't have any poison in it, if you find out that I meant to poison you, it doesn't matter. That it's the, the thought that you, counts. It's the thought that counts, right? That expression really does actually have some meaning, right? Because it won't matter to you that the cake is actually delicious and unpoisonous if you know that I was trying to poison you, right? So intentions are what really matter when we seem to interact in these moral cases rather than simply outcome. What okay, more? and so when, when I hear you, a philosopher, talking about thought experiments, say there seems to be a general rule... I expect you're about to overturn that general rule. So, <laughs> so what what are let's let's get to moral luck. What give me an example of of maybe the opposite. Good. So moral luck is this set of problems which where you, we seem to drive a wedge between this general rule that intention is what determines whether or not an action is good or bad. Because what moral luck cases bring out is structurally identical situations where the actions and intentions of an agent are exactly the same and yet our moral responses are very different based on some lucky factor that changes 
along the way. Okay, like what? So here's an Give example. An Imagine a guy who's just walking along and trucks a brick off the top of a building. And he doesn't hit anybody because there's nobody underneath the building at that point. You know, uh -huh. His intentions in this case are pure callous disregard for the safety of others. He just f fancies throwing a brick for no reason. That's he not... It. It's Callous disregard isn't his intention. His intention is it's fun to throw things off high places. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. His, his in, okay, good. But, it, but that carries with it callous disregard because you should know as an adult that you shouldn't throw bricks off high places because uh -huh. there might be people underneath. But that's fine. That, that fleshes it out nicely. So that's scenario number one. The guy throws the brick because it's fun to throw bricks. Brick smashes on the pavement below, doesn't hit anybody. Okay, what, yeah, so... If we hear about this guy, we're likely to think this person's a douchebag, right? That was that was not a cool thing to do because uh -huh. they could have hurt somebody. But hey, they got away with it. No one got hurt. We kind of move on, right? But let's vary the scenario. Imagine the exact same person for the exact same reasons. It's fun to throw bricks. Chucks the brick off the top of the building. But this time, just completely by chance, there is somebody walking beneath them. The brick hits them on the head and kills them, right? Mm -hmm. So... In this case, it seems that we want to say a heck of a lot more than this person is just a douchebag, right? Yeah, this person's a killer. This person's a killer, right? And they should probably be punished for what they did because they killed somebody. But then mm -hmm. the puzzle is, well, hang on a minute. If intention is what determines whether or not an act is morally good or bad rather than simply outcome, why is it we have such different responses in these kinds of cases? Because in both cases, the guy's intentions are exactly the same. Just wants to chuck a brick because mm -hmm. chucking bricks is fun. And in both cases, the consequence, the actions he takes are exactly the same. He throws a brick, right? So the, his physical actions are identical uh -huh. in both cases. The only thing that's different is the matter of luck, which is in the second case, bad luck for the person walking underneath him because they get killed by a brick. So if normally we think intentions are what matters, why is it that in these kinds of cases we have dramatically different responses? Well, there's, there's one thing I just want to mention is that you may be underestimating how much people blame the person who throws something that doesn't hit someone. Because before, shortly before, you know, the entire world shut down, we had a small local celebrity. We call her Chair Girl now in Toronto. <laughs> and this is a young woman who was, I guess, in high spirits. The lighting in the video looked to be early in the morning, and she posted on social media her throwing a chair, a lawn chair, off a condominium balcony onto the highway. Um, and it went viral. I think she had to go to actually go to court for something and was uh, publicly shamed and this and that. So, but no, but, but she, she, she didn't hit anyone. Exactly. But if she had hit, so here's interesting, right? It's not just our intuitions. It's the law too. If she had hit somebody and say caused a crash on the highway, she'd have gone to jail. Yeah. Whereas as it stands, she's publicly shamed and people think what a douche. But if she'd been prosecuted as if she had actually hit someone and killed them, most people would think that's too harsh. But then the question is, why? It's pure luck that she didn't kill anybody. Drunk driving is a good example, it's right? It's a good example. Could be like fun, kind of bad thing to do. But like once you kill someone, then it turns into murder. Right. So if you get arrested drunk driving and you haven't hit anybody yet, you will, in the UK at least, you will lose your license and pay a large fine, right? If, you know, let's say instead of the police stopping you, five minutes later down the road, you hit a child, you go to jail. But the only difference uh -huh. is the bad luck in the second case that the police didn't stop you five minutes earlier. 
Right. So and you're probably going to feel you're going to feel a lot worse. Everyone's going to think you're total scum. Good. So, th- so, so this is another important aspect of moral luck, which is if we bring about bad things ourselves, even if it's totally out of our control and just because of bad luck, we feel worse if we actually do uh-huh. create the bad outcome. So imagine you're driving a truck and a child jumps in front of your truck. There's nothing you can do about it. You were doing, you were driving at the speed limit. You were stone cold sober. You'd had enough sleep. You, you were both hands on the wheel, focused, right? But just pure bad luck, the child jumped out at, the, at that moment and, and the child dies, right? Now, mm-hmm. somebody who said to us, oh yeah, but you know, I don't feel any remorse about that because it wasn't my fault. I was doing everything that I was supposed to do. I wasn't drunk. I had my hands on the wheel. I was doing the, the speed limit. You know, it's just bad luck. So, you know, nothing, nothing on me, Gov. Anybody who had that response, I would feel very, very, very suspicious about because this is the phenomenon of what Bernard Williams philosopher of the 20th century who thought a lot about this problem called the phenomenon of agent regret which is a class of regret which attaches to having brought certain consequences about even if you didn't mean it even if Mm -hmm. you did you you know you you didn't you wanted to do otherwise even if the only reason this happened is pure bad luck Um, and there's an older english word for this state of emotional distress it's called being piacular which is a word we don't really use anymore, <laughs> but it, it literally means being in a state for one which one needs to atone. So it's you have done something, you have brought something bad about, and as a result, you feel the need to atone for it. So the classic example mm. from ancient Greek literature is Oedipus. So when Oedipus finds out that he's banged his mum and killed his dad, he feels piacular. He didn't mean to kill his dad. He didn't know it was his dad, right? He thought it was just some random dude on the highway who was challenged into a sword fight. He didn't mean yeah. to fuck his mum. He thought his mum was back in Corinth, right? And he, you know, he didn't realize he'd been brought up by an adopted family, but he did. He did kill his father and he did fuck his mother. And so he's piacular. He has agent regret because even though he didn't mean to do these things, he didn't intend to do them. It's not he his did fault. Yeah, it, no, it's not his fault. But he still feels like he needs to atone. So he stabs himself in the eyes with pins. Right? It's just the, uh-huh. the Greek way out. <laughs> right. That's how he purifies himself. And even then he doesn't really do it. But he has to do something drastic because of the crime he's committed involuntarily, without intention, mm-hmm. through pure bad luck that he couldn't control, is nonetheless on him. And that's the classic example of moral luck. It's where something is on you and you're responsible for it and you have to feel like you're piacular even though you didn't do it out of choice, you didn't do it because you wanted to, you did it through pure bad luck beyond your control. Right. I can see why Oedipus feels bad and there's a whole tragedy associated with that, but isn't the whole point of modern rationalist morality to get rid of those cases and to say that if it's not your fault, then we shouldn't blame someone for it? So there's been a powerful strain of Western philosophy that has suggested precisely that, that these kinds of emotions are confused, they're irrational, and we'd better be better off doing without them. Um, so famously, Kantian ethics, one of the, the big players mm-hmm. in the history of Western philosophy, kind of says exactly that. Look, you know, all that matters is that you intend to do good. The only truly good thing is a goodwill. Uh, you're only responsible for what you chose to bring about. And morality is all about finding out what your duty is and simply acting on it 
And as long as you're trying to fulfill your duty and obey the moral rules, then it doesn't matter what the consequences are. And you certainly shouldn't be having these kinds of self-torturing feelings because you happen to bring about bad consequences. As long as you were trying to live a good life by following the rules of what can call the categorical imperative, the absolute rules of morality, which you give to yourself through a process of rational deduction, that's all that matters. And all this other stuff is exactly a kind of superstitious, uh, em emotionally grotty uh, mess that we should be better off doing without. But many people have tried to suggest that precisely that, that the kind of emotional messiness that moral luck cases draw to are exactly what philosophy should try and disabuse us of. We should try and eject those kinds of things from our moral life. So Kant thinks we should get rid of some of these irrational emotions that don't make sense. Uh, what do you think? Well, I disagree. Because I, I tend to think with, with Adam Smith, who was one of the great early modern um, moral philosophers, as well as the famous economist, who put forward some of the, the most in, insightful discussions of moral luck in the 18th century, and also with Bernard Williams, who was the kind of person who sort of resurrected these ideas for, for a modern audience, that actually it's quite likely that these aspects of our moral emotions are doing important work for us, and that we probably would be worse off if we got rid of the emotional messiness and the apparent arbitrariness. Why do we care so much more about the guy when the brick hits the person? Why Why is it that we think that person should go to jail, even though it's a matter, pure matter of luck that the, that the brick killed somebody rather than didn't kill somebody? Why do we feel so bad when we kill the child because we're driving the truck, even though we were driving it safely, even though it wasn't our fault? You know, I tend to think it's good that we have these kinds of emotions and that we shouldn't try and get rid of them. All right, so I accept that luck matters, that uh, if the kid runs in front of your car, you're morally tainted. You're a worse person. Now, can we expand a little bit on what counts as luck? Because it strikes me that it's not just these random events, right? It could be all sorts of things. Maybe you had a, a bad personal history and that inclines you more to crime, or you might have a specific neurological chemical balance, or... Um, one interesting one could be your political circumstances, right? If you grow up or live in a really bad political regime, uh, you might face some difficult choices about things that you have to do. Because people who wound up being Nazis, if they were born 20 years earlier or later or over some national borders, they probably wouldn't have been guilty of doing a Holocaust, right? Um, and yet that seems in large part due to luck. Absolutely, hugely. So what I'm asking is, in some cases, these are cases of bad luck that make you seem like a worse person or guilty, but in other cases, sometimes they seem like extenuating circumstances. Maybe you were threatened, maybe you had a really bad day, maybe your daughter was tied up in the Brooklyn basement and so you were under duress. So do all these instances of luck affect your moral status? So I think, yes, they can. Um, and I think what you've brought out really nicely there is the extent to which luck pervades so much and often so much more than we're willing to remember in our day-to-day -day lives. And that actually a recognition of how many things are ultimately down to luck can, I think, induce a certain kind of humility and a certain kind of kindness towards other people. Because even people who do bad things, when you find out 
the extenuating circumstances. As a general rule, we tend to soften our responses to them. Now, not in all cases. Well, exactly, right? And, the, and on the counter side is the unkind response, which is the hard response, which is there shouldn't be extenuating circumstances. Look, sh- look shouldn't luck shouldn't matter, and we must punish people. So there are these two competing moral psychological responses in our culture. One is luck should ameliorate and should make us kinder to people, even when they've done bad things, because so much of what people do tends to be rooted in things beyond their control. The other very powerful response is to disregard that, treat them as though they were independent of their circumstances and hurt them and punish them. And those two emotional responses have been duking it out in our culture for a very long time and the punishment strand has tended to prevail especially at the level of public policy and at the level of things like judicial systems and it's a really interesting question whether in fact as a society we might be a better kind of society if we were a bit more honest about how much of the bad stuff that happens is due to luck rather than pure intention and pure agency. Okay, so let me just summarize a little bit. You've got two approaches to morality. One is Kantian, rational, and based on intention. So if you don't intend to do something wrong, you shouldn't be held responsible for it. That's the one you say is kind of philosophically consistent. Then you have another one, which all these things about moral luck are based on, and this is where people are guilty from unintended consequences Knives can be haunted, and this approach to morality is based on emotions. Right. Now, you say that these emotions, these moral emotions that they're based on are inconsistent and irrational, but we should still listen to them instead of trying to ignore them. Yes, because... there is, And, and so, interesting, so I'm with Smith on, on why this is probably a good thing. And it partly comes down to the fact that intent, living in a world where intentions alone were all that mattered may not be a world we'd like to live in and might in fact be something of a horror existence. And it's interesting uh-huh. to think through why. So if intentions are all that matters, if we judged people purely by their intentions and not also by the consequences of their actions, we constantly be trying to work out what people's internal motivations were and it would be kind of like a living hell Mm -hmm. it's quite healthy and quite useful and quite socially desirable for us not to be constantly prying into each other's secret emotions and secret sentiments so that's one kind of consideration but it's not in many ways the most important or the most interesting so it's a bit of a pain in the ass to always be wondering about people's intentions but there's a more important reason that we should listen to these emotions about moral luck so i think these moral luck cases and 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 the cases of the objects that become tainted for good or bad are interesting because they reveal something about the way we want to interact with other people in the world so take the the brick thrower it's bad to throw bricks off buildings right because you might hit somebody and although there's something weird about the fact that in one case we you know, we just think this person's a douche and we're kind of like we'll publicly shame them on social media but that's as far as it should go versus if they kill somebody we think they should probably go to prison the fact that we have an aversion to people who behave like that in both cases is quite useful because it encourages 
us to encourage other people not to behave like that, right? So even if you didn't hit somebody, even if you didn't kill somebody, mm -hmm. that's not enough to let you off the hook. You know, the consequences aren't, you know, the fact that the bad consequences didn't happen isn't enough to let you off on the hook because, because you shouldn't behave like that around other people. So you, you want to you make an example of people who aren't even guilty just to scare people away from doing the, the thing that might hurt someone? Not them. just to scare them, but to internalize amongst ourselves and people like us that that's the kind of behavior that we don't engage in because it might lead to other people being hurt. Okay. And other people, innocent bystanders, should be respected. They should, as Smith puts it, they should be treated as though they've got a kind of sacredness, right? So you've got to be careful around them. So if you're walking along on clifftops, don't kick stones off the edge, right? Because even if you didn't mean to kill somebody, you've got to be careful in this situation because you might hurt somebody else. So you've got to think about other people first, right? So one thing it's doing here is encouraging us to get out of our own kind of preoccupation with ourselves. And... and treat other people as though they're kind of sacred in some way smith points out and he and he says he doesn't really know why or how we got to this stage it seems to be a kind of quirk of our irregular sentiments but he thinks on balance that's a pretty good thing if we treat other people as sacred and as things that are to be respected and that we don't take risks regarding them then in general we're all going to live better lives and we're all going to do better if we if we behave like that towards each other and the other kind of example goes back to those things where the objects are kind of tainted, for better or worse. And I think this connects to that idea of treating other people as sacred. That, like Smith, I'm not really sure why we have this sense of like, oh, that knife, someone used that to kill your family? Like, you shouldn't be using that knife anymore, right? There's something, mm -hmm. there's something wrong about the knife. The knife is now compromised, and the knife is now tainted. Although it's kind of irrational, there is something very good about a world in which we treat objects like that with disdain. Because what we're kind of doing is investing our moral respect and our moral empathy with the victims of the crime into the knife and sort of saying, stuff like that doesn't belong anymore. Okay, so you're saying that this emotional mechanism whereby a bad moral act can contaminate everything around it, knives, objects, people who didn't intend to do wrong, is good because it reinforces our repulsion against morally repellent acts. Fine. My problem with this, my problem with abdicating rational moral judgment in favor of irrational moral emotion is that one of the most common ways this contamination runs is to groups of people. So you get one emotionally salient crime or act, and that pollutes the whole group that that person belongs to. Right. And this can lead to persecution and all sorts of bad stuff like that. And I don't think that just letting this sense of moral contamination run wherever it runs is going to make the world a better place like you're saying good so i think that's absolutely correct um and so i wouldn't want to say that this phenomenon is always and in all cases a good thing and indeed i think that's a really important example of how 
as a society, we've just chosen to renounce certain ways in which this psychological quirk can manifest, right? And I think you're absolutely mm -hmm. right that when we transpose it away from objects and start to put it onto groups of people, so, you know, the Jews, they're always doing this kind of thing, aren't they? Uh, because it's... It, what kind it, of thing, Paul? I'll let, I'll let our listeners fill in, <laughs> fill in as, as their prejudice, prejudices dictate. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't do that. We have good listeners. Um, no, but so I think that you're exactly right. Um, and we've got to be careful here because what can be a healthy and beneficial phenomenon in some cases, you know, it's a general rule. I think it's good if people are turned off Bill Cosby's comedy because Bill Cosby was an awful person. Because what that does is reinforces our rejection of that kind of behavior, whoever it may have come from, right? A world in which people uh -huh. didn't think there was any problem with listening to Michael Jackson after the revelations about what he seems to have done to children, I think would be a morally worse world. But we can make a distinction here. A world in which people are treating entire groups of, of humans as polluted because of some association with maybe the wrongdoing of one individual. Now that to me seems like a bad world. And that to me seems to be where the quirk no longer is helpful and starts to become corrupt or in various ways ethically very deeply problematic. And you I don't think, think it's a worse world if nobody's enjoying Michael Jackson's songs? Um okay, that's a that's a that's a good example. I don't know, I kinda like I kinda like some of those eighties tunes, you know? They're all right. Well, this is what I want to press you on, right? Because you keep saying that as a matter of psychological fact, people get turned off by art that they find out is by really bad people or people who've done bad things. But I don't think that everyone has this intuition. I think a lot of people think that their enjoyment of Michael Jackson's music can coexist with their condemnation of his abuses. So... Are you saying that they shouldn't enjoy his music and that people should not enjoy a tasty cup of jello because of its association with Bill Cosby, which makes it the dessert of rapists or something? So I, I think it's genuinely difficult, right? So I don't think so 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 what I want to say here is because there's so much complex psychology going on here, and because there are so many conflicting intuitions and issues. It's unwise for anybody to think that they can answer that question definitively, yes, no, right? So I'd want to say it's not completely wrong because we can detach the artist from their product. And that product is going to be attached to, for example, people's memories that were made before the art revelations about the artist came out. It's good, they're going to be attached to emotional resonances they have with that kind of song, right? But, but now that we know that the artist did these things, that should register. And if it doesn't register, I think there's something normatively questionable. I, I'm suspicious of people. I'm, anybody who thinks that Bill Cosby's comedy is unaffected by knowledge of what Bill Cosby did, that seems to me to be normatively suspicious. But I'm not sitting here saying yes, no, black, white answers to whether you can or cannot enjoy the artistic product of people who did bad things because I think it's genuinely to some extent confusing and tragic that there, there is there is conflict here so it's both normative and it's psychological but what I actually and here I'm very much with Adam Smith and Bernard Williams is I want to resist the idea that the philosopher's job is just to give one clear yes no answer here that I want to say yeah you should feel a twinge okay. and you should and, and you know and it's up to you to what extent you're comfortable 
with these things. I would I would suggest that if you're entirely comfortable with them, then a lot of people are going to think there's something wrong with you. You might be fine with that. But you should be sensitive <laughs> as to why people think there's something wrong with you. And on balance, I think it's good that people have this kind of sense of unease about these things. Okay, so I want to talk a little more about just how irregular these sentiments are. Because we've talked a lot about art being ruined when the artists do something really bad when they're bad people. But you also mentioned in your essay other examples of good things that came from bad people. For example, most people like the Civil Rights Act in America, but that was passed by LBJ, who was famously an asshole. More than an asshole. I mean, read the, bi- the, the famous biographies by Robert Caro. I mean, LBJ is on another level. Give us give us some examples. Um, I mean, he was he he stole his Senate seat. Um, he was almost certainly a vitriolic racist. He may well have sexually abused his uh, his staff. He would frequently do things like take a shit whilst dictating notes to his secretaries just to bully them, to let them know who was boss. I mean, the guy was unspeakable. He was corrupt. Um, he he you know it just just. It's unbelievable what that guy like uh, did in his in his public and private life. But he passed the Civil Rights Act, and that's pretty important to American history, right? <laughs> right. So how come the Civil Rights Act isn't polluted by the evil Lyndon B. Johnson? So that's an interesting counterexample, which I hadn't thought of before. I've got to admit, right? Um, now there's a question if, if maybe people. Yeah, maybe some some acts are so important and so good, and because it's a political act that focuses purely on the consequences for people that aren't LBJ, maybe that makes an important difference. But perhaps perhaps there's a sense in which I actually wonder if Caro himself, the the great biography of LBJ, did have something like this experience, because the story about him is he wrote a very famous Pulitzer Prize winning biography of Robert Moses, the architect who built most of New York. Um, And he said Moses was such a despicable character that after that he wanted to write about somebody he admired. So he admired LBJ because of LBJ's Uh uh, liberal reforms (laughs) and and the Civil Rights Act. And then he ended up writing this four-volume unfinished biography of LBJ, which pretty much reveals that he was one of the worst... people ever to have lived and i wonder if caro himself most thorough milkshake duck (laughs) i wonder if caro himself has a kind of sense of being so deep into the the grotty legacy of lbj himself ends up coming out thinking a lot less of his political achievements and whether the achievements himself are lessened but then maybe in a case of politics because what lbj did was so important for the consequences it brought about for other people Mm -hmm. and on a level of much more great uh, ethical significance than simply being a nice piece of music or even a great piece of music, maybe that counterbalances it out in a different way. So there's an interesting question there about whether political actions are more separable. You know, we we tend to be more comfortable in the realm of politics, divorcing Uh people's personalities from their actual, at least we used to be. Maybe, Maybe that's something that's changed more recently. Here's another thing that kind of bothers me about this worrying um, so much about artists and famous people, which is that the causality of watching, I don't know, a Harvey Weinstein production to his continued monstrosity, especially after he's been uh, punished, or, you know, what kind of causal harm or bad in the world would it create for me to laugh at Bill Cosby um, or enjoy Michael Jackson's music, given that they're not going to cause any more harm. Um, I'm not out promoting that their personal life. I'm enjoying the thing. So 
that to me is like the connection between the moral evil and my enjoyment of the product is pretty attenuated. I admit that it's there. There's an association. Now, I want to compare that to examples where I think that there's a pretty clear causal relationship between my actions and my consumption and moral wrongs. So we could talk about different supply chains, people jumping out of windows in Apple factories, uh, slavery in the seafood industry, um, all sorts of moral horrors, environmental horrors that involved in food production, uh, just even the way we treat our migrant agricultural workers in your country and mine. Um, these aspects of like everyday consumption seem to be causing moral harm that's comparable to like a certain uh, Hollywood villains. And it seems like this is one where consuming it, you're more obviously supporting the evil that's happening that's directly causally connected to it. Like if I buy shrimp packed in Thailand, I'm probably supporting ungodly um, labor practices. Whereas that's not obviously true to me uh, if, if I listen to Off the Wall. So this, I think, is exactly why Smith wants to call these sentiments irregular. Because for precisely the reason you've said, it seems like totally out of whack that we should get so upset about the films of Harvey Weinstein. Not that we should definitely get upset about what Harvey Weinstein did, but that we should feel his films should now be viewed with suspicion. Seems like a bit of an overreaction because, as you said, it doesn't seem to actually lead to any harmful consequences. Especially when, at the same time, we're totally indifferent about the slavery of the people who make our iPhones. And that leads to a and so so what so I think you've answered your own question there about how irregular are these sentiments like seems pretty irregular right seems out of whack, and Smith handles this because he was a really phenomenal moral philosopher and it's still massively underrated in my view today, but he makes this point himself which is, imagine someone told you that an earthquake had swallowed up you know a million people in China and killed them instantly. Yeah, you'd feel bad about that, but then you wouldn't really think about it You know, beyond that. If you find out, oh, the earthquake happened, a million people died, you kind of go, oh, that's a shame, that's really sad, but you know, five minutes later, you wouldn't even think about it. But if someone said to you, tomorrow I'm going to cut off your little <laughs> finger, right? you wouldn't sleep tonight. Right? Because if you knew for sure you're getting your little finger cut off tomorrow, you'd be up all night like freaking out about it, right? And But nobody thinks that your little finger being cut off is worse than a million people in China dying, right? No sane person thinks that. And yet our sentiments are very, very strongly calibrated towards ourselves, right? Right. Well, if our moral sentiments are so irregular and no sane person would follow them when making their moral judgment about your Chinese earthquake, then why should we be guided by these sentiments in cases like murder knives and folk music? Because ultimately, like Smith, like Bernard Williams, like David Hume, the guys who have written most insightful in this area, I don't think it's for philosophers <laughs> to tell us how to live. I think it's for us re really living our ethical lives to tease these things out carefully on a lived personal basis and muddle through yeah. as best we can, but not assume that the philosopher coming in with reason and the sharp scalpel of separating different cases and looking for black white answers i don't think that's when philosophy is at its best i think philosophy is at its best when it steps back and lets you appreciate how messy the mess is and try and improve that in various ways and try and make it a bit more consistent and try and be honest about it 
Um, but ultimately, what else do we have to be guided by here other than our actual moral emotions and experiences? Because that's all that there is here. Well, that might not be all that there is because just earlier you were praising the accomplishments of modern liberal society by getting rid of certain forms of moral superstition like racism, group responsibility, and stuff like that. So isn't that a case of reason guiding the emotions or at least rejecting some forms of moral emotion it's the it's 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 reason allowing us to examine our emotions and us choosing which emotions we're going to allow to prevail and encourage over others right it's still the emotions that are, still that are being work. guided by reason got you okay let me ask you <laughs> <laughs> okay actually i'm not going to ask you another one I think that's probably a good place to end it for today. So thank you, Paul. That was super interesting. And everyone should go read his essay on Eon Magazine, A-E-O-N. It's called Tainted by Association, and it's super interesting. So before we go, is there anything you'd like to leave us with, Paul? No, I think we, we covered a lot there. I mean, I think I think it's kind of worth reiterating just how deep these things go i mean we hit what free will moral responsibility reason uh -huh. the passions and i think that's important because morality isn't simple moral judgments aren't simple and anybody who thinks that ethics can be boiled down to simple criteria and simple judgments i think uh -huh. is making a serious mistake so you know we covered a lot of ground and some of it we didn't cover very well but that's sort of not our fault as i like to say that's a feature <laughs> not a bug all right uh thanks paul well, Cliff, thanks very much for having me again. It's a pleasure.